Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. Okay, so last week I had tipped off that I will be sharing the results of the gender and music year survey. But thanks to some smart consultation, I'm going to wait just a little while longer with the hope that it will result in more people getting to access the results, right? I mean, that's that's pretty much the point. And a little bit longer won't hurt, right? You're doing a great job without it. But I mean, really, it's it's good. It's going to be good. You're going to be on the edge of your seat. But yeah, but yeah, thanks for your patience, friends. I apologize for like getting all excited, but it is written up and you will get to see it very soon. All right. I've had a few exciting gear related weeks with a few pedals I'll be sharing on Instagram over the next month or so. And I also sold a bunch of stuff and I bought two things. One is a pretty busted old Music Master bass from 1978, which I'm actually very excited about. I'm actually psyched that it is busted because it means that, like, not only did I get a great deal on it, but I don't feel bad ripping it up as a vintage instrument and making it my own. I actually had a very similar bass probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago and didn't I never really got into it, I think, mostly because of the pickup. And so this way I'll be able to, like, put some new pickups in, make it cool. Yeah. And, you know, they're just a nice short scale bass. You know how I feel about short scale basses. If you have been listening to the podcast, I don't have one that I'm like really into right now. So hopefully, hopefully we're going to get there. So it, uh, I'll be de- detailing all of that when I finally get it in my hands. It's currently on layaway at Empire Guitars since I went there, not with the purpose of buying a bass and putting it on layaway seemed like the adult thing to do. There you go. All right. So also, I had my very first Facebook Marketplace experience, uh, which I will say was actually a treat. I was surprised. I've been looking for a vintage Music Man 112 combo for a few months now. And I love my old 70s champ, but the 8-inch speaker in it is very small, so I was hoping to get something a little bit bigger. And, you know, I had a delightful experience with this guy on Facebook Marketplace who really wanted to do a trade, which is not something I usually do or think to do because I'm like, what are the chances that he's going to want the exact same things that I have? Pretty low. So anyway, so I'm offering, I offered a few guitar bass related things and then sort of on a whim, I was like, also I have this hammered dulcimer, which I have used maybe five times in the last seven years. And he was like really into it. I was like, cool buddy. And he scooted, I scooted him a hundred dollars and the dulcimer, and I got this Music Man 112 RD combo amp, which is basically exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, it's it's perfect. It sounds great, great for my pedals. And now I have to decide if it's actually too loud for my basement or not. Um, and we'll see how that goes. If not, then maybe I'll have a stereo setup with my band when we start to hit practice again. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Either way, I'm definitely moving to the barter system. That is, that's what I've learned here. All right, anyway, that's my news. So uh, let's get moving right along here. I want to start off by thanking Midriff sponsors. First, Earthquaker Devices. Today, I am giving folks a heads up that Earthquaker has created this like wild video series called Studio Go Boom, featuring the highly talented engineer Sylvia Massey, who, if you are not familiar, probably made all of your favorite records. Uh, so she's recorded Prince, Tool, Johnny Cass, Luscious Jackson, just pretty much everyone. And there's a highly dramatic trailer on Earthquaker's Instagram and YouTube, which has left me on the edge of my seat. For real, though, Sylvia has, like, 
I think the largest vintage mic collection in the world. And they're going to do what seems to be just these wacky experiments, which maybe involve electrocuting pickles. I don't know. You'll have to watch the video yourself. Relatedly, my Earthquaker Devices YouTube quote of the week comes from user Gully Gumdrops, who says, About bloody time, Sylvia got her own show. Unquote. I couldn't agree more. To learn more about Studio Go Boom or any of their handmade pedals in Akron, Ohio, visit EarthquakerDevices.com for more. All right. I also want to thank, once again, Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price with a quick turnaround, editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, everything you would ever need. She can help you do it. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at Official Studio 121. And last but not least, I want to thank Electrofood Pedals. Electrofood are just rad pedal builders. They're based out of Philly. They make a variety of amazing and crushing drives. And each flavor of drive is fabulous, uh, whether it's a boost, whether it's a harmonic percolator, whether it's like a kind of ratty sort of thing. Whatever it is, they're all good. If you want to hear their current pedal run, which is the Germ Warfare, which is a germanium boost, the equally fabulous demoer, Just Megan, did a very sonically pleasing video, including the Germ Warfare, which you can find on Electrofoods Instagram at electrofoods.ultd. It's Electrofoods Unlimited, ULTD. Uh, go grab one. Make it yours. So... These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. And you can find links in the show notes to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram and Facebook pages and website as well. All right. So today's interview has been a long time coming, more than 10 years, actually. Today's guest is Meredith Stern, who is an absolutely just shredding drummer, one of my closest friends, uh, as we have been playing in bands together with each other longer than anyone else, uh, both of us. So most recently in the band uh, Alpha Error and then previously in a band called Whore Paint, and she played also in a band called Teenage Wasteband, who I did not play with, but is also great. Uh, she <laughs> has also run DIY warehouse spaces, booked and run sound since high school, including a long stint at ASU 20 in Providence, booking small shows and festivals, She's an amazing visual artist, which is her main gig now, where she creates line of cut collages and ceramics. Also, uh, she's a part of the Just Seeds Artist Cooperative. Meredith is literally the punkest person I know. Like, she can DIY just about anything, and when the apocalypse hits, she will have the skills to survive. I will die. I, I will die. I cannot cook a thing. But she will live. Uh, she, from f like farming, fi farming, fixing cars, sewing, pretty much anything, Meredith can do it. Uh, she also is a, like a really thoughtful intersectional feminist analysis and engages in activism in a number of different spaces as well. Anyway, she's the best. You're going to hear why. And I am very sad that we haven't had band practice for over a year because of the pandemic. All right. And uh, oh, after our interview, I will cover uh, making mistakes and learning to apologize, because doesn't everyone need to know that? It's true. All right. Here is my interview with Meredith. 
Meredith, welcome to Midriff. Hello. Thanks for having me. So excited that you're here. You're the best. Gentle listeners, uh, <laughs> Meredith is the person who I have been in a band with longer than anyone else. And this, our 30th episode, is probably the appropriate time uh, for us to sit down. And I'm very excited about this. So for folks who are unfortunate not to know you, can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Okay, so my name is Meredith Stern. I use she, her pronouns. When I was 15, I started playing bass. I took a couple lessons from a metalhead guy who I was excited to play, learn how to play metal from, but instead he wanted me to play Wipeout. So that did not last long. And so then I moved on to learning how to play music by listening to Minor Threat, Bikini Kill, and The Minutemen, and just playing along. So I played bass for a couple of years, and then I moved in with my friend Bryce in New Orleans, and he had a drum kit that I started playing casually in our house in our houses, and then that's that's like what really started getting me into playing drums. And then I definitely have joked sometimes that I dated a few drummers until I realized that I wanted to be a drummer, and so that's kind of like how I <laughs> my arc into music was through this kind of path. Um, and then, and so I played music in various bands, The Foreheads, Accident, Teenage Wasteband, Whore Paint, and Alpha Error with Hillary, two of the five main bands of my life you've been a part Boom. of. Um, <laughs> and then for years, like I book shows, I've been booking shows, running shows, doing sound for shows also since high school. And so it started with like going to shows that were run in Philadelphia by the Cabbage Collective and they did DIY shows. So I kind of grew up in like the DIY music community. And then that led me to eventually doing house shows in New Orleans and then booking through um, a warehouse space with my friends, Bryce and Alec um, in New Orleans at a place we started called Nove Miasto. And then later I worked at, I moved to Providence and then worked at AS220 where I was a house manager for a few years and then became a, the, the program director, which was basically the person who ran the show, who booked the shows, managed the sound system and, and so forth. So, and then I've also done DJing for many years. So that's my long-winded intro. That was great. That was very efficient. For someone who has done as much musically as you have, I'm very impressed. Uh, Meredith and I also had a joke before this because Meredith sometimes likes to talk a lot in a very good way, which I love. And also I will add is very useful if you're trying to stay awake on tour and not fall asleep, which is generally our <laughs> dynamic where Meredith will be the one who will keep me up talking about literally anything and I will drive and hopefully not fall asleep. So that's that's how it works. Uh, <laughs> it's an important life skill. So yeah. so bearing that in mind, I'm impressed. So, OK, so so that's your music stuff, which we're going to get into more. Can you talk a little bit about your artwork and your work with Just Seeds? I'm, a, I'm part of a 41-member worker-owned printmaker cooperative, which has members in U.S., Mexico, and Canada. We identify as a decentralized cooperative, and we cooperate on portfolio projects. We work with grassroots organizations and movements to create artwork for use in campaign and movement work. We became a worker-owned co-op, I think, in 2007. So it's been, what is that, 14 or 15, 14 or so years? Mm-hmm. That's been like one of my most beloved and longest running projects that I've been fortunate to be part of. And I also, I mean, I make a living 
quote unquote, as an artist. So, which involves I, like I like how you say I understand the quote unquote, but also is like is the opposite of that like making a dying like how does that? <laughs> well, the quote unquote is like making a living part, sure. um, because there's definitely you know. It, it depends on how you define what a living wage is, whether sure. I, I qualify as a as in that category. Um, Fair. So I do things like speak at colleges, um, middle schools, high schools, teach workshops, uh, have art that gets used uh, by sold uh, sold to archives and museums and universities, and and then I also just sell online artwork and then sell in like craft fairs. So I, I kind of identify as both a commercial artist and a fine artist because my my work kind of exists in multiple spheres and possibly, I guess, also educational artist. I don't even know if that's a mm. phrase that exists. Um, anyway, so yeah, so Just Needs is really given a frame to do that effectively and consistently throughout the past multiple years. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it seems like you know, with your individual art, so you do mostly line of cut work, um, sometimes specifically just a print and sometimes it's collaged. Frequently, there is a theme of your what you call cooperation cats. So if you would like cats, Meredith is your gal. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't say gal very often, but it felt right there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's the colors, like, I don't know, the colorway. What do you call that? I'm not an artist. They're just very pleasing. The The cats themselves are frequently involved in some sort of like cooperation or DIT activity. And yeah, it's cool. And like some of them are more like deeply politically political. Some of your work is like, I feel like more like on the nose political. And some of it is more like cats in a family doing work together or something like that. Is that accurate? <laughs> totally. Okay. Like I think that, I mean, I definitely grew up in the nineties with this kind of notion of like the personal being political. And so mm. I also think at, at this point, I kind of focus more on, on change and in institution on an institutional level and through organizations. But I think that that kind of personal is political like vibe is, is, is where, what it is, what my like more subtle work kind of exists within. And so it's a, a way of trying to bring people into a conversation that might not all already like buy into certain frameworks or narratives. So there's like the, mm -hmm. the de desire for like creating space for open dialogue or communication that can evolve collect collaboratively. And so the didactic work, I think, tends to speak to people who already are, have bought into a certain narrative or idea. Right. Like somebody might want your like everybody needs feminism print, but that uh, that a different person might be like, that seems like I don't know if I it seems like too much, but I do like this cat and that this cat is getting yes. along with this other person and doing work together. Like it's like a yeah, it's I think it gets it a lot of the ways that we talk about doing change more broadly. Right. So it's like meeting kind of meeting somebody where they're at. So you also do <laughs> ceramic work. <laughs> and I feel like it's also kind of in those two categories. I like that you you have some you have some like political ceramic work and more like some functional craft work uh, or not craft I guess what do you what would you call that um, functional like yeah. Um, ceramics yeah. yeah I like craft so, I think because I, yeah. I, I I also feel like retaking the phrase craft because I think craft is has historically been used within like the art the capital A arts institution in a derogatory way to kind of reflect art done by like women, people of color, people who are like, don't have, aren't, aren't in like financially like upper class realm. So, 
So I actually love the idea of craft and kind of shifting and transforming how we think about creative practice. And so the idea of reclaiming the idea of craft is appealing to me. So yes, Mm. please. Is craft to fine art as punk is to fine music? What's fine music? I guess, you know, I don't know. Do you see where I'm going with this? (laughs) Yeah, like classical music, like classical music may see self-made music or self-taught musicians in a similar way that the fine art establishment may have historically viewed crafters who don't come out of the institution of like an MFA program. It's like the same structures of power and oppression and hierarchy like exist within every kind of genre. And so I do think that is an accurate statement. All right. Okay. Let's talk about gear. We're, we're on a gear podcast. Can we talk about gear? Yes. All right. Let's do it. So, so let's talk about your first experience with gear. So you said you had, you were borrowing a friend's kit. You want to talk about that? My best friend and roommate Bryce, like I lived with him for over seven years in New Orleans. And so as soon as we moved in together in 1990, I think it was the fall of 1995, he had a drum kit set up in his bedroom. And so he would put a a thin sheet over it. And then we would just like kind of play so that we wouldn't totally like horrify our neighbors. (laughs) And so I, so I started playing drum drums on his learning on his kit and he, wait, so um, you put a sheet over it? To like dampen yes, the dampen like the a, symbols and stuff. A top sheet. Oh, I've never thought of that before. That's actually really smart. Anyway, hot tip. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um so basically like it became so after years of like living together, we booked shows together, at some point he was just not using the drums as much as I was. And so then um when we finally moved into the warehouse together, Nove Miasto in nineteen ninety nine, I started a band with Uh, my boyfriend at the time, Alec, and our friend Stella. And then I was like playing all the time, learning how to play drums. And then Bryce was like, do you just want to buy my drum kit? And I was like, yes, actually. And so I I bought the drum kit and just played with it. It's still the kit I use today. It's a 1990 Ludwig rocker set. I think it's, it's it's five drums. I replaced the snare at some point during whore paint. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the big purchase that I made is like, I've replaced all the hardware and the symbols. And so in, I think it was in 2009, I was working at ACE 20 and we had booked, well, it was Armageddon Records had booked a show with the Amoebics that were doing a reunion tour. And on tour was this, this guy, Roy Mayorga, who had been the drummer for Nausea for years, which was a band that had mm-hmm. totally influenced my teenagerhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so he was playing on this amazing kit. His cymbals sounded dark. I mean, so like loud and dark. It was like loud yeah. and dark. And I just loved it. And so after he was done playing, I went up and asked him about his cymbals. And he was so rad. I have to say, he was like the first person that he was willing to talk to me about every single thing, why he liked it, how it sounded, like why he chose that specific cymbal. He talked to me as if I was actually a musician and mm. like a peer rather than like, talking to me as if I was in a condescending way, which was Mm -hmm. a lot of how people, a lot of, a lot of people I know have had really negative experiences in this kind of situation. So, Mm -hmm. so he was really awesome. And so after talking to him, I was like, I am doing this. Like, I know exactly what I want. So I, I picked out like a couple of the things that he, that he had, and then made some different choices. Like I went to, I did go to guitar center and like tried out some, 
some additional symbols. And so I landed with like the AAX fast hats, AAX hand crash, which is 18 inch, an APX 16 inch crash, a Paragon symbol, a 22 inch AAX ride, and a nine inch HH radio cup. And so mm-hmm. the radio cup is the one that's like, ding. Ding. That thing is the <laughs> best. So, I feel like it's, I, I feel like your sound, you have like part of your sound is about your symbols to some degree, but but a lot of it is related to your playing and the way that your symbols and your playing, especially your tom playing, interact with those things. Because you've got the little the little ding, and then you also use a china symbol with some frequency. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I like the Paragon symbol. Really, is just like it just really is kind of gnarly. And then with the like the juxtaposition with like the kind of like dainty like bright like radia cup, I just feel like. It, it kind of like there's like a sort of kind of dichotomy there, but then with everything else, I feel like it becomes like kind of a spectrum of sound. And I'm really mm-hmm. interested in, in spectrums rather than like, like oppositional forces purely. So, so I'm interested in the symbols being able to create a kind of a like dramatic path mm. <laughs> that kind of runs the gambit instead of being just like totally one way or, or about just the extremes. So mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. But it is. Uh, so that's like the sound. Oh, wait, and also your your snare is is a sonar. What is your snare? Yes. The snare yeah. is sonar. You actually went with me. And so you helped me. It was so rad to go, get to go together to like find a used snare together. Mm-hmm. So I just had no idea where to go because I had never shot for drums. I've only shot for cymbals. <laughs> uh-huh. And so since you had done a lot of gear shopping, it was, and it was just like great to be able to go with you because then it was just not like a solo. I've had a lot of solo, solo woman in the guitar center or like the whatever situations, like, especially when I worked at Ace 220. And so it was really nice to be able to have a different experience in that where we were kind of like team we're a team. We went together. And so we could kind of just like, no matter what was going on, whether it was awesome or not awesome, we could just kind of block out the world and be together. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're buying this gear know. together. Yes. This is our and shared I just, like, experience. Also wanted an exp- like I wanted to pick a drum based on like, you know, like your experience versus whoever was just in the dr- in the drum store at that day what they were going to try to sell. That's not like they wouldn't have an understanding of what my sound was. So you were like, uniquely qualified to be mm, my well thank you um, mm. my cohort on that journey so well thank so, you. well you're welcome uh <laughs> yeah i think it sounds rad but it, it was interesting because we went to village drum in situate rhode island and we and i through riot or girls rock knew the owner and they're great and so also interestingly the way that the space is set up like there's the upstairs and then there's the downstairs and in the downstairs, there's usually no one around. So like, I think it was probably just the two of us down there in my memory too. So we like, we could just kind of like check it out on our own without feeling like pressure or whatever, but knew that we could go asking Anthony if we had a question, you know? So yeah. So that's an interesting, just like physical space thing to, that I've, that I've noticed. Totally. Yes. Anyway. So as far as, but as far as your actual drumming style, the way that you play, do you want to speak to that? Um, either just like ha- like where that comes from for you, either like in band practice or live or whatever. Yeah, I definitely. Um, so when I first started playing drums, I was also singing. So I was like the singing drummer. So I was super limited in terms of what physically I was able to, how I was able to move my body because I did not have a headset initially. And so it was a lot of like 
a specific, very restricted movement. And so then after that, I think it was when I was playing music with Robert Pickle and Mike Stoltz in a, in a temporary, in a band we were part of for a really brief period of time, we had actually, actually, we we were going to play at um, the Mars gas building in, in Providence, uh, in Providence, which Mm -hmm. is just like a toxic wasteland. (laughs) And I was, and I already like had had um, some asthma issues. So in that band, I, what I decided for like, in order to play that show, I was like, I'm going to need like a gas mask or something. And then I was like, oh, I should totally go to like the hardware store and get one of those respirators and then put like a little contact mic inside the respirator. And then I can sing while I'm doing that. And so, so then that actually became the vocal sound. And so it was purely of like, how do I protect my lungs? Mm. Um, So that's where that landed. And so it had a like really weird distortion on it because like, it's a tiny contact mic inside of this like plastic, (laughs) tiny plastic case above my mouth, you know? So it just like was a super weird, so that was like a super weird accidental sound that I had. So I did not need any sort of effects on the vocals. It was very well affected. So that's like, so that was like when it was, I was able to like kind of open up and transition into like, how do I like shift, like what I'm able to do with my body? Cause I played actually, cause I think about like the band I was in the accident. We were also like, we both was two people, two women. We both played she played bass and sang and I drummed and sang. So there's a lot of experiences that I had where I was also having to accidentally sing or something, whether I kind of, that was never like my intention. Like I want to be a singer, but it was just like, no one who's going to sing. Like no one can like play a band instrument and sing. So then I was like, I guess I'll try. I don't know how to play anything. So I might as well learn together. <laughs> so, so after that was like when, then I think after that band broke up was like poor paint. And so then it was like, oh, I get to like just be a drummer and not be like in- hindered by like things. And I guess actually when Teenage Wasteband was a band, I also was just like moving my body crazy because like yeah. also that band was so much about this kind of assault of just chaos. Like most, it like Joe had never been in a band before. So it was like her first time. And so there was a certain kind of like, and we just kind of like started on accident. Like we weren't like, we're going to go start a band. It was just like, we we're like living together and like kind of just like messing around. And then, so that band was just kind of this like weird, messy experiment. And so, and actually like the messier it was, like the more fun people had. And so that's where I feel like I probably started thrashing my body around. Cause it was just yeah. like, seemed to like, why not? Then with whore paint, it was just like, okay, how do we like approach like being like wanting to be in a semi like serious band and like, what does that look like? And how do we um, present ourselves in a way that's like evocative, powerful, like kind of is transformative and kind of flows with the idea of like feminism and music. And so then there was a a lot of intentionality, I think that we all put into like our stage personas and how we performed and how we wanted um, to be seen. And so so it kind of like was a transition to me from like uh, being in punk bands where it was kind of like anything goes and we're just here to have fun and like, who cares into like, how do we create a, like a vibration that is resonant and is meaningful and is like, basically is the change that you want to see. So it's like, if we want people to want to play music and want people to be inspired, then like, if we feel, con- if we exude confidence and we're able to like both like see like we're having fun and we're in the music and we're engaged, then it's like, I feel like it's the conversation where if you bring like a hundred percent or 110%, other people will bring that with you. And so there's like that 
exchange. And I think music is so much about collaboration and exchange and the relationship, Mm -hmm. especially live music to the audience. Like if you, it's just like, if you're in a room with 200 people who want to be there or zero people who are like two people who are really bummed, like that has a huge difference. I mean, or if it's 10 people who are really excited and 200 people who are bummed, like you want to (laughs) be like, you want to be in the room where people are like feeling good, like whether, regardless of whether there's a lot of people or not, it's really about the, the energy and the communication and the connection. And so, so I do think that, um, uh, a lot of where I've become today with drumming is like really has come out of that kind of intentionality and creating a like frame for like, for us to be seen as like powerful and like important in a space that sometimes is like devaluing of marginalized, of people with marginalized identities within it. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting because like when I, when I, I don't, it's funny. Cause like, I feel like when I'm playing and if we're playing a live show, I'm not always watching you play because I'm looking forward as the guitarist and you're behind me. And so, but like when I see videos of you playing, it's just hair and arms everywhere. <laughs> it's like <laughs> wild. And, and yeah, and it's very, it's just like a fun thing and you can see the energy in, in that. And I, and I get to see that in band practice, but I feel like live shows a different thing where it's like amped up to the next level. So, but yeah. Totally. And then also like there is certain, like I can be very extroverted, but I'm also super introverted. And so I feel like the hair kind of helps me mm. like transform into another space where it's not where I'm both aware of where I am, but also can kind of like just be like in my own little like hair circle. <laughs> And so <laughs> it's like a mask. It is. Yeah. And so it's like, so then it also kind of like takes away some of the self-conscious or insecurity that I might fa- feel at some moment to just be like, it doesn't matter what's out there. Like who cares? Like, mm-hmm. cool. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about your experiences around gender identities and gear. So, uh, You'll, I'm going to leave this open to you for where you want to get into it. So you talked about a positive experience you had around gear, which is awesome. And maybe a little bit touched on a couple of like less great experiences. Maybe if you want to any, any stories or anything you want to get into for folks around, around gear. I think I can talk about sound systems, like PAs mm-hmm. and how that relates to running a show and also DJing mm-hmm. um, in venues where I am possibly like one of the only like women or like femme person in a space. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we started having shows at Nova Miasta, we did not have a PA. And so we just like, we were all like fairly unresourced, uh, like under-resourced individually and collectively. And so I, I convinced like the local music gear shop to like loan for free their PA to us. Mm-hmm. Um, like they had like a use, like a small kind of janky PA and they would just like loan it to me. So for multiple, multiple times I was able to go in like the day of the show be like, Hey, can I buy your PA today? And, um, I'm sure it helped that I was like a young, like 21 year old, like weird punk chick, you know? <laughs> so, and I'm sure like the only, you know, so, but they, they like loaned us the PAs. So I, so I would go in and get the PA. Um, everyone's like, you, that's like your job. Cause you're good at it. So I would do that. And then, um, but then like lightning bolt came to play and which is funny because Peter, my current husband was on tour making a video of them then. So technically I, that, and that's like when I met him. So lightning bolt played and our PA was like, 
just no match for their amp system that they had for the bass for Brian's bass and also um, Brian Chippendale's vocals. And so like, there's like in the video on that, like, you can see me like messing with the PA and like trying to get it up and it's like already maxed out. And so after that, collectively we were like, you know, I think we need a, we actually need to buy a PA and a PA that can compete with like rock bands that are going to come play at our house because yeah. this like janky PA we're getting is just not going to hold up. So then, um, several of us in, at the house, like we all, like we basically saved money and chipped in and worked together to like get a PA. And so, so I learned how to, and a lot of people in the house, like did not want to run the shows or, mm-hmm. or, and so it was like Bryce, Alec and I really did pull the bulk of booking promotions, uh, sound communicating with bands like hospitality, uh, you know, bands would stay with us. We'd cook them food. So we were doing all aspects of kind of music management. And so, so I really got to learn how to run a, to use a PA and run shows, you know, so I, I've got at this point, like 20, 35 years of like show booking experience and 20 years of running, of running sound and managing shows. I don't think it's 35. Um, I think the math is wrong on that. (laughs) Okay. The math is wrong. Okay. Uh, What should I say? I have many years, many years. I have many years of booking shows and um, managing sound systems and equipment. And so there's been a couple times over the years when I was DJing particularly after I worked at ASU 20, where I was replacing speakers inside of, mm-hmm. uh, inside of the PA system and micromanaging the entire system where I was DJing a show and then at a like warehouse space and the space didn't have a sound person. And so me and like whoever else was DJing were there. And I was like, I can sound it, set it up. And they're like, no, you can't, you don't know what you're doing. And I'd be like, uh, yes, actually I do this for a living. And I've been doing this <laughs> For many years. I've been doing this for 400 years. <laughs> for 4,000 years. So it's always like, I was in these men, these venues where these cisgender men were telling me that they knew what they were doing and I didn't. And so I was like, okay, fine, go do it. Mm-hmm. And then they would do it wrong or it wouldn't work. And then they would like get upset and get very emotional. And then I would fix and correctly set up the sound system. And then there would be no acknowledgement that that had happened. And it was as if like they had done it correctly and, and, and just like that I was just tweaking a knob or something. Mm-hmm. So that happened to me at least twice where I was, and, and it was in both times I fixed the sound system within a very short period of time. So it was not, it was just like a cable was plugged in in the wrong yeah. hole. Like it was not like some massive system. There were always some like very basic thing that I saw them doing. And I was like, you obviously don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can, yeah. you, can you tell your touring story? Which touring? Well, there's many, but you Meredith has so many good stories, everyone. <laughs> uh, there's so many. It's wild. Every time there's like some new story that I haven't heard. This story I have heard. The one about playing in New York. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, that's not a gear related experience. It's not. But that okay. Is like, okay. We um, can come back to it if you yeah, want. Totally. But I can, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll go there. Okay. All right. So in my first band in 2000, it was a band called the foreheads and I got pregnant and I was living in new Orleans and new Orleans has really terrible anti-abortion legislation. And I think I can't remember if it was 24 hour waiting periods and they had to um, like inform consent, like all this like garbage stuff that's trying to just diminish and uh, diminish people and, and have them have a terrible experience trying to just access general basic healthcare. 
so I decided that I wanted to get an abortion in New York City because at a feminist health clinic where I wouldn't have to be dealing with that kind of like the Southern white supremacist, patriarchal, institutional system of garbage. So we went on tour. I had written a song that was about being pregnant and not wanting to be. And so we we toured around the country, including the Midwest. And so at every show, I'd be like, you know, and this next song is about being pregnant and not wanting to be, and I'm getting an abortion in New York in a week, you know? And so then I would like play the song. And a lot of times it was just like the room would just go silent. You could drop a pin. And then I would just like play this like insane, just like, we're all just like messy. None of us really knew how to play our instruments. So then we'd play this like train wreck of a musical like blah and so uh and actually like when we were in I think it was in uh was it Michigan after the show this guy came up to me and he was like you should not have an abortion and then tried to proselytize to me and I was I was just like not having it and I was like I just got I was just like yelling at him and I was like this is not your right just is not your body it is not and just like he he was like Okay. So he's the only person who actually like communicated with me about it. Mm -hmm. And I just shut him down. I was just like, no. Uh So we get to New York and it was like this ridiculous thing actually, because the whole, the whole experience of being New York, it started with me getting an abortion and then ended with us about to go through the Holland tunnel. And then the um, transmission of the car fell out of the car (laughs) right before we were about to go through the tunnel. And then we on Friday night, like at rush hour, like when everything was closing. And, and so the, actually like the end of the story also is funny because we ended up getting the car fixed at the place where Wendy O. Williams used to get her. Is it Wendy Williams or Wendy O. Wendy Williams? O. Uh, well, From the plasmatics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we got the car, the car fixed, like bolted back in from where like the plasmatics van would go to get fixed. So there was something kind of beautiful and ridiculous about that. Uh-huh. But, um, but anyway, so, so it started with us getting it into New York and there was like this very small window of time to like get the abortion at the clinic and then go to play the show. And so I just remember it was like a rush, like, and so I had my skateboard and so I skate, <laughs> we skateboard, we took the we took the subway to like the clinic, like we took the subway and then I had to skateboard the rest of the way to the clinic. And then I got the abortion and then we skateboarded back to the, to the subway and then went to the show. And then I played a rock show and I was like, I don't feel great. And so after like three songs, we were like, I think I gotta, I think I just have to stop playing. And so we played an extremely short, short set. I don't, then, know. Like, I don't know what's wilder about that, the playing the show or skateboarding home afterwards. That's the part. I feel like I never caught that part of the story before, but it's worth noting. Yes, because like it's like the streets, you know, streets skateboarding. You're not on like smooth pavement. It's like rocky, like no matter how like perfect a street is, it isn't. It's, there's like vibrations and like having a like minor, um, any sort of like minor surgical style thing happening with your innards and then like vibrating your body. I oh, don't God. think, I think that would be counterindicated. You know, probably, I think they'd be probably like, probably not, not, not best practice. Well, <sighs> totally. So, um, but I survived. And then, so then the rest of the, the tour, the narrative was like, and I just got an abortion in New York. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. so yeah. And that, but then like, I feel like the interest, the, an, another interesting part of the story is that then 15 years later, I was pregnant on purpose and Whore Paint was, didn't we record 
the second album while I was pregnant. So it was like, I was in my first trimester. And then by the third trimester, we were playing shows and I was super pregnant mm-hmm. with horror paint. And so I do love that I've been able to have like a couple different experiences being pregnant, playing music. Yes. Uh, because that is something that is not, I don't know. I don't think I ever like thought about that or heard about that or like those aren't stories that were kind of part of or part of the like mainstream narrative, I think, about um, musicians. Like, and, and also just that, like to me, um, abortion is a very, like when I got pregnant, there was such a stigma attached to getting an abortion and there still is, but I think less so. There's been a lot of cultural work done to normalize that this is an ex- a, a regular experience that people may uh, have as part of their healthcare reproductive healthcare um, options throughout their life. But it really felt like I was on a mission to destigmatize and normalize abortion through this like weird punk band. Mm -hmm. And we definitely like, there was, we also cleared a room, (laughs) Uh legitimately cleared a room. Although I don't remember if it was really because of that story or if it was just that we were a kind of terrible band to listen to (laughs) in their opinions. I don't know. But anyway, Yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah. And I, and I do, I appreciate the like complication of the story being that like you have had these multiple experiences and that's okay. And that's normal and it should be acceptable and part of the range of experiences that allow someone to be a full person. I didn't mean to interrupt your gear story. So if you had another gear story you wanted to add, now's your chance. (laughs) I mean, it's not necessarily quite as good of a story, but there's definitely... When I worked at ASU 20, I had to repeatedly go to multiple, um, multiple gear shops. I don't want to be too specific about them, but I would say that I did not have an awesome experience at the local one or the like mega superstore one. I feel like they both, they both had negative aspects to them, Mm -hmm. but I will say that, um, like at Guitar Center, I totally was there so often. I was one of very few women who were there often mm-hmm. enough that I basically had to become friends with people who had initially been very like rude and sexist to me. And so it became this like game of like, how do I, ch- how do I like charm this person into like having to get over their sexism so that they will actually sell me the correct stuff that I want and not try to like sell me something I don't want or or just like treat me like a human. And so I would definitely, I definitely would try to disarm them with my ridiculous storytelling. And I definitely, (laughs) I do feel like I like, cause I sometimes just like drop crazy on people and it just kind of diffuses whatever weird like thought they had of like what I might be or who like just, I don't know. So, so I'm, I'm kind of a fan of like using humor and like just bizarrity to just kind of shift the narrative and interrupt like whatever kind of stereotype they're creating in their head. And it, it does like, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm going to like undo their (laughs) whatever deep seated things are going on, but it definitely, the end result was always that I felt like I could actually have a, like that I would develop a working relationship with people as a result of this strategy for me personally. So I do feel like there's something about repetition, like having to repeatedly interface with people that I think can be useful for breaking down stereotypes and um, kind of like singular narratives that, that I felt like was the, like the better part of having to 
like engage in that way. That's really interesting um, because, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before because it's you kind of had to do that because it was literally your job. You had to go there on a regular basis and and engage in this continued (laughs) activity and conversation. But if somebody didn't have to, it wasn't their job and they were just like, I really don't want to have to deal with this. Like they could just be like, peace, I'm out, you know, and then, and then what happens? And that could be, that could be, you know, someone just decides to go somewhere else or it could be like, we're done with music. I'm not doing this anymore. But to your point, like, I feel like I, I appreciate your note that like, there is this thing where it's like, if you continue to interact with somebody, the larger pool of experience they have to draw from is a way of like humanizing someone, which is, yeah, a really good point. Yeah, and actually, there I just watched a a talk from uh, someone. Now I can't. I'd have to look it up. I think he was part of the Equal Justice Initiative, and he talks about the importance of having uncomfortable conversations as part of transformation and change. Is it Brian Stevenson? Is so, that his name? So I hadn't even thought about um, like music in this way, in this way, but I actually feel like it is in some ways like having to repeatedly enter spaces that are uncomfortable and forcing conversation and a shift of like is, I feel like it's related to what he was talking about, even if it's not exactly what his intention with that, that talk was. Mm -hmm. But I do think my strategy over the years has generally been to uh, repeatedly interrupt and, and continue the course rather than walk away. And cause I think that it's, and it is harder and it's uncomfortable. And I've definitely, it's, it definitely contributed to me having a certain kind of like angry, aggressive reaction, reactionary response to certain like repeated micro and mega aggressions that I'd faced. But I also think that it's, I think being able to like in a real time over the years, like I think this kind of ties into like the age that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can now, since I had a lot of kind of like angry, emotional, like immediate kind of reactions and responses to things at this point, there's certain conversations that kind of repeatedly come up. And so instead of having the in- initial reaction I would once have, I can now I'm, I'm trying to come up with different ways to re- react because I also just don't want to be angry and like sitting in that. And I don't think it it doesn't like when I get that way personally, it's harder for me to actually have a kind of conversation that could be shifting of like whatever's mm. going on. And so like I do, I do really like Audre Lorde's like uses of anger. So I feel like anger mm. is a totally effective and can be utilized within discourse and transformation I also, at this moment, at this point, there's certain conversations that come up so frequently and then just like, it's like, oh, it's that one. It's that, it's like the, oh, you play good drums, good for a girl, or like, uh, your equipment looks really like basic and like childish or like, there's certain like narratives that it's like, this is not the first time I've heard this. Mm -hmm. And so now the challenge is like, how do I respond to this in a way that's like different Mm -hmm. and like, like surprising and like, maybe like, (laughs) like actually does like ask a question. Like I often think asking a question when someone is just not even aware of what they're saying can sometimes lead that person to understand what they're saying in a way that if I just like got angry at them at that moment, that it just becomes this like defensive who's right and who's wrong. And so Mm -hmm. I'm interested in a narrative that is like different than that, that can kind of somehow... And, and even if it's, I don't even think that it's necessarily going to be more or less effective at undoing 
behavior, but it's more of like the experience that I want to personally have and how I feel happier afterwards. Mm. And so if I feel like I don't allow that person to like shift my own personal emotional like vibration, then I feel like they can still be the like sexist person that they are. And I'm not going to change them. That's fine. But I don't have to leave feeling worse about myself. And in fact, I can feel like I like, you know, like walked away from something that's like not great. And right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's like, you know, the whole thing about like right to comfort as a part of white supremacy and like by forcing yourself into like forcing them into having that conversation, you're automatically like countering that. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So if you're running a space, right, whether it is like a music venue that is legal or a DIY space or you are a business owner who runs like a music, you're, you know, like a music shop, like what kind of recommendations specifically then would you give to people around that? How to, how to make those spaces better and more inclusive? Yeah. So So I really feel like who is sitting at the table when the space is being created is going to define who utilizes that space and who takes ownership of it. So honestly, I am really inspired. I think that this is a very interesting moment when, because of the disruption of public space as being used, it is a really, it allows for a really unique opportunity where we can like, ta-da, start over. Mm -hmm. Let's try again. Like you don't actually have to like, like, I think there's a lot of space to just like scrap whatever was going on. Let's just start new. And it's not in a way that I think for a lot of organizations, that's like scary to like shift or spaces to like change halfway through. Cause then like, are we losing something? Like, how is this? Like, there's all that fear of change that happens. But if you're just starting from scratch, um, which this moment really is like perfect for, right? then I think it's a matter of like, how do you you know, how do you bring, how, like, what is, like, I think that it's a really good time for creative envisioning of like, what is a space that we want to have exist? And then how do we bring those people together to like have a conversation to like understand what the space might be? Because mm-hmm. I also think a lot of times there becomes like, I have an idea of the space and I'm going to try to invite people in to like my idea um, rather than kind of understanding like what is a collective need and trying to like start from there. And like, honestly, like, uh, the last times that I played venues before coronavirus, like I was so bummed and bored being in those spaces that if I never have to like walk into a white run, like punk DIY space ever again, like I am fine with that personally, you know, like, like if, if the, if the answer is like, (laughs) I don't know what the answer is personally, because I would just be one of many minds possibly like coming up with what it is, but but I do feel like if some like, like whatever it is that comes out, I hope that greater things can come out. And I think like, I think about what, how to approach that kind of discussion um, rather than that I have the ideas for what that would look like. Mm-hmm. And so I think of like being open-minded, like the, necess- the, necess- the necessity to be humble and to understand that, that what we think we might want might actually not be as good at what would come out of a group decision. And so like, I personally don't think that I can envision what the perfect space might be, Mm -hmm. but if I'm part of a group of people with like different perspectives and ideas, then probably a way better space will come out of that. And whether that's like a multifaceted space, like, so, you know, so it's like part of it's too, is like, I think that 
in like DIY or DIT culture, there becomes this kind of narrative, narrow focus of a type of genre or aesthetic vision of what a space should look like that I think just is too narrow to actually create an inclusive space that actually does, that is transformative and is all the things that people want it to be. And like these grand visions that we have of creating spaces, like I think about in Nove Miasto where we had all these grand visions of being able to open up the space to any community that wanted to be meeting. And somebody walked in the space and was like, this is a disgusting warehouse. Like all of your couches were pulled out of the garbage who, and, and like the floor, like you could mop it a thousand times and it's still just full of dust and just disgusting. Like, do you, is that really like, you know, is that really a space that is welcoming? Like, you know, cause you know, and so, and who feels welcome in that space? And it's like, and so that was, the, the, I, I remember when somebody told me that about the aesthetic vibration of the space mm-hmm. being non-inclusive, that was, that was, that's like one example of like, of how I've been trying to like shift and think about what does, what do inclusive, inclusive spaces look like? And they have to be comfortable. Like if you have elders there, you need to have chairs that people can sit on right. and not just like a folding chair. That's like really uncomfortable. Like people have back issues and, you know, or like if you have kids there, like you don't want like your two-year-old cl- climbing around in like lead dust in a lead dust, a dusty leaded warehouse. So, you know, so having like a space where kids can be safe and there's a person watching them who is trusted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate your comment around the aesthetic piece of that as well. And I think that it, the, the aesthetic and then the accessibility piece, like the two of those kind of together, like thinking about the ways that the spaces that we're creating, whether it's a venue space or a community space or a store, even sometimes the aesthetics of those spaces can be so specific, as you're saying, that they, they're actually become alienating like things what what might be like really really cool for one group is totally not in line with other folks and that's that's a real thing I guess thinking around like the social construction of of disability sort of and that like the spaces that we're creating create the that they they determine the access and so yeah it's it's just interesting to think about whether it's like do you like can someone get up the stairs do you have uh you know a ramp, like everything, all of those things and the way, different ways that they sort of, uh, reflect lack of access. Yeah. And I will, I'll say like, um, I mean, France does not have like the perfect system. (laughs) Um, but when we, I remember the first time I visited France with my parents and it was the summer and every program, like they, every single, almost every single night of the week, my parents were like, do you want to go to this thing? Do you want to go to this thing? Do you want to go to this thing? And there was basically almost every day during the summer, there was definitely every weekend, there were multiple options to go to a free public space to see music. And they would have food, like whether it was like vendors or catering, like there'd be some sort of food, there was like alcohol, and there was always uh, some sort of a kid a kid zone. So there'd be, it would be like next to a park or there'd be a, fa- a fountain the kids would play, play in. There's no cars. Um, so there's some space where the kids could kind of create their own little like, like game or whatever. And there was always chairs. Like there was always comfortable sitting and you would see babies up through people who are, 
who looked to me in their 70s or 80s. So it, they were truly intergenerational spaces, you know, that that were able to exist. They also acknowledged like that parents might want to have a glass of wine. Kids might want to have a play date. People all need to eat and they were always free. And so like, what's more, so you could totally just go and not buy anything and just hang out. You could bring your own food. Like there was no requirement for participating in the, um, on another level, you had to bring your own glass for mm. drinks. Mm. So you had to bring your own wine glass. I don't know how this, how coronavirus may or may not like shift that. So there was no plastic cups everywhere. So these things would have, these events would happen and that it was the, the thing would shut down and there was some, some garbage that would, that was accumulated in the receptacles um, and then was like removed. But there was not plastic cups. Every, like every time you have a free music festival in the United States, there are a thousand like red plastic cups yeah. littering the sidewalk. Also, people are just like getting blitzed, wasted. And so there's often somebody's like vomiting or peeing or whatever. Anyway, so the point is just like, I think in the US, there's this kind of like fear of getting people of different age groups together that often happens, um, particularly in terms of like the idea that children and alcohol can exist in the same space is like, is seen as very dangerous as opposed to like the number of like a lack of gun register, like right. <laughs> registrations and like white, like we are so much more concerned, not with white terrorism, but with like the idea that a 15 year old might have a sip of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think it's like, how are we, what are we prioritizing anyway? So, so being in France, which is not a perfect society and there, there was definitely, you know, there's, there's definitely like racism and inequity issues and things, but so it's not some perfect utopia, but in terms of like how their ability to create spaces for music that is accessible to all ages, I think is, uh, was, was seriously inspiring to me with a baby trying to figure out like, oh, wow, every show in the U.S. starts at like 10 p.m. And they say all ages. And what they actually mean is is people aged 18 and over. Mm-hmm. Because like what five-year-old is going to show up to a show at 10 p.m. and feel like, cool. Right. Um, <laughs> like and, actually... and, and anybody who's over a certain age too, or somebody who has to work like in... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I also, I would be so psyched if people like rethought, like what is showtime, mm, you know, and yes. uh, how do you run an efficient event that doesn't drag on for six hours? Oh my God, please. Um, so I think like, you know, so I think anyway, so trying to think about, you know, like what is the, what is a space that actually is like inclusive for many people, I think requires thinking about how do you make a space that a baby, a 20 year old and an 80-year-old might actually all want to be in. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think we're going to close up shop here in our conversation today, which makes me very sad. But uh, <laughs> but I do want you to be able to share a contact for folks. Like, how can people find out more about you other than here on my uh, podcast? <laughs> well, they could go to justseeds.org, J-U-S-T-S-E-E-D-S dot O-R-G. Um, and that uh, has art from me as well as 40 other awesome artists members. And then I'm also on Instagram at, at Miss Trouser Pants. Um, Obviously. Which is, a re- which is like, which is related to my grandfather having had a slacks business. So after his mother, because my grandfather, so my great grandmother worked in the garment industry and then 
because my grandfather grew up learning how to sew and helping her when he became old enough, then he started a slacks business, Slacks by Halpern. And so there is a, a connection to pants and slacks and this kind of narrative. Um, I, I never knew that story, the history behind your Instagram handle. I'm learning so much. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> It's basically like at Miss Pants Pants, um, but I thought it'd be funnier if it was like two different types of pants. Mm, so. Getting wild. Uh, cool. <laughs> yes. All right. Meredith, thank you so much for taking the time. I cannot, I literally cannot wait until we can be in the same place playing music again. Me too. I'm so psyched. Ow! Meredith really is one of my favorite people alive, and we really hadn't sat down even virtually to talk for this long in probably a year. And I mean, you can see how cool she is, obviously. I am very excited to get vaccinated so we can hang out and play music again. So you should definitely uh, check out more of her work if you are so inclined at MeredithStern.org. And uh, there's all of her links are in the show notes as well. So. I have had a number of conversations recently with folks who were wondering about ways that cis men can be better allies. And when I get to start that conversation, I think that so I'll I'll back up. You know, you could go into a whole conversation around allyship versus accompliceship versus like co-conspiratorship and all of that language. But we will leave that for another time. But I'll say one of the topics Meredith discussed in this episode was the idea of the importance of uncomfortable conversations, which we've discussed here a number of times. And this is important for being an ally to any oppressed group. But another part of this is realizing that you will make mistakes. So folks get so wrapped up and worried that they will make a mistake that they become paralyzed and instead decide to do nothing, which is also not helpful, right? So, you know, but if you realize that part of the process of doing this work from the perspective of a person in power means that you will make mistakes, and that is normal. I think that helps the situation. So, I mean, personally, I make mistakes all the time, but, you know, obviously this doesn't absolve someone from, like, educating themselves and doing that work and, you know, just making mistakes all over people. But, you know, it is important to acknowledge that that making mistakes is part of the process. So what happens after you make a mistake? You have to apologize, And I think that this is one of the most important things that you can do as an ally is to learn how to apologize well. And here are four very quick steps about how to do it. It's pretty simple, really. So first is you say you're sorry. Check that out. How easy is that? I'm sorry. Two, recognizing it's not all about you. This is not the time to get defensive. It's not the time to get emotional. There's no need for excuses. Simply move on to step three which is thank them for telling you that you made a mistake. This is key. It took emotional labor and time for them to have this conversation with you above and beyond the harm that, you know, you caused by whatever you did wrong in the first place. And now they're giving you an opportunity to learn and grow. And this is where you can thank them for that. Really just thank them and say, thank you for taking the time to tell me this, right? Commit to learning more. So uh, this is step four, final step. We're already there. How easy. Tell the person that you will educate yourself on the topic. So they might offer at that point to share ideas or resources, but if not, don't push it. It's not their job to educate you. And there is a 9,000% chance 
that a quick internet search will get you where you need to go. So personally, it took me time to learn to apologize well. I didn't even know I was doing it wrong. But when you feel like, you know, you are a quote unquote good person and you feel like someone's telling you that you're a bad person by by making whatever comment, it's very easy to get defensive. But realizing that people are neither all good or all bad and hopefully we're all working to do better is helpful. And recognizing you were trying to do better, that's helpful too. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't apologize. You should. And we all need to get better at it. So let's let's work on this together. All right. I hope that was helpful for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions about the podcast or ideas, please share them with me. You can find more at HillaryBJones.com. All right. Thanks for listening.